Well, before we dive into our text, I wanted to share a brief uh, update and summary of our trip for those of us who went to Utah. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Nathaniel Madonna. I'm the director of our students and kids ministries here at Calvary. And a couple weeks ago, uh, we had the opportunity to take 13 high school students over to Logan, Utah, uh, where we were part of Plant Camp uh, and helped Gospel Peace Church, which is a church plant pastored by Paul Campbell, who we as a church support. We were one of seven church groups, and I believe each one came from a different state. So I think there were seven states represented at Plant Camp. Uh, we had 25 students, adults, and a couple kids come from Calvary, and there were a little over 100 Plant Campers there total, um, which raised the percentage of evangelical Christians in the area by about 20% while we were in town uh, that week. Uh, for context... The, the population of the greater Logan area is around 130,000 people, and it's growing rapidly. Like each year, we've, I've been out there three years, and each year we've gone out there, there's like a new subdivision, and the year we go next, there's like another new subdivision next to that subdivision. It's, it's growing. And mil, most of those 130,000 people are just are, are latter, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, short, shorthand, we, we would say Mormon. So having uh, plant camp in town, I say all that to say having plant camp in town is a big deal because when you have like a thousand Christians and you have another hundred coming to town, that's, that's a big difference. So over the course of the week, we were able to help run Gospel Peace's first ever uh, soccer camp there in Logan. They had a couple locations, and by God's grace, we had over about a hundred or so kids that came uh, during the week for soccer camp. Of those kids, many came from families that the church had had no real interaction with prior to that week. So many were just kids from the community that came, that were invited, and then they came to join us for soccer camp. Uh, Aaron Wister and I, we had the opportunity to teach even at the one location that we were helping out at. Uh, Plant Camp was also, we were able to distribute about 8,000 or so door hangers throughout the community, uh, which is able to cover a lot of homes, a lot of people there in Logan. Uh, another day, we helped with a bunch of projects at a community center where Gospel Peace meets for worship. So we did all kinds of work uh, there, some very interesting jobs, too. Uh, and another day, we helped with uh, doing some car washes just for people in the community just to say, hey, we want to serve you and give back to you in this way. And there have been two Sundays. Today's the third Sunday since we were out there for plant camp. And if you're in Slack, quick little plug for Slack, uh, you've seen Carol Campbell post the past couple weeks that Gospel Peace has been blessed with visitors uh, each week that have come as a result of soccer camp, of the door hangers, just of our efforts to reach the community for Christ. Um, and we're excited about that. And not only that, I think we helped accomplish what the Apostle Paul wrote of in, in 2 Corinthians uh, or, 2.15, we help leave the, the sweet aroma of Christ there in Logan. And I want to thank each of you, because I know many of you have prayed for us. Many of you have given financially to the trip through our fundraiser. So thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, supporting us and our, all of our trips this, this year as, as missions endeavors, but for supporting uh, Utah. Um, I, I think it would just be simply fantastic if we as a church can continue to, to help uh, Paul Campbell and help Gospel Peace Church and to see the gospel go forward out there in Logan. So again, thank you for all of you who have been a part of making it happen. Well, today is Family Sunday, 
meaning that kids uh, kindergarten through fifth grade are with us uh, the entire service. So what better time to preach through one of the uh, most uh, challenging, harsh texts in Scripture, right? Did you read what was up there on the screen? Family Sunday, welcome, kids. Woohoo! All right, let's go. As you can probably tell while Hudson was reading, uh, this is not one of those passages that you usually slap on a coffee mug or put on your wall at home. I can be honest, there aren't any Psalm 58 verses on our decor at home. In fact, I found one source that mentioned how the Anglican church has bracketed out these passages, passages like these, from their Bibles simply because of how unbiblical they sound. And And the thing is, I kind of get it. Because on the surface, a psalm sounds a lot less like the Bible and more like a deranged lunatic who hates people's guts. And Psalm 58 is one of several imprecatory psalms within, within the Psalter. Um, to, to imprecate someone is an old-fashioned word. We don't really use it often, but it means to curse or to invoke evil on someone. And as you can probably gather, Psalm 58 is written by David against specific enemies in his life. We, we don't know who or what motivated the, the psalm, But David clearly desired for the greatest possible evil to befall his enemies. So the logical question that leaves with us is how can the same Bible that records Jesus saying things like, love your neighbor as yourself, and even love your enemies, how can that same Bible include Psalm 58? Because unanswered, I would say this question threatens not just the validity of this passage. Maybe we should be bracketing it. And if not that, maybe it's questioning even the Bible itself. Is the Bible actually true and good as we say it is? However, we must not forget what we know to be true about God and his word. Because we know that all scripture, which would include Psalm 58, is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine. It's good for reproof. It's good for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Bible is not a book about what we think we need, but about what we need to know about God and his gospel. And if we know and believe this, then we can approach Psalm 58 expecting to learn something about the character and nature of God. So Psalm 58 and the imprecatory Psalms are not just teaching us to curse our enemies. Sorry, that's not the main point that we go and curse our enemies. Rather, they teach us how to address, how to respond to sin and injustice. They vividly model how we are to respond to public, prominent, and prolific wickedness. So this morning, we're going to examine Psalm 58 as a case study for how to read imprecatory passages. Because we're going to keep encountering a few of these throughout our study in Psalms over the next few years and as we go through the entire Psalter. We've already hit one or two over the past couple years that you may or may not recall. But as we do study today, we'll see how this Psalm reveals three essential truths that we each need to be reminded of. Three essential truths that I think we each need to be reminded of. Number one, we must hate Sin. Number one, we must hate sin. First, we need a definition to make sure we know what we're talking about here. What is this sin that we are to hate? Because hate's a pretty strong word, right? I don't just throw that around lightly. Like, what is this sin that we are to hate? Sin is anything we think, say, or do that is contrary 
to God's character. Anything we think, say, or do that is contrary to God's character. Example, if God is truth, therefore any non-truth, a lie, is a sin. Or God is pure, so therefore any impurity, any immoral, immorality is sin. Wherever sin, and we're going to say sin several times in our sermon today, wherever sin pops up, that's what we're talking about. Uh, Pastor Trevor and I, we were talking a little bit about this uh, passage earlier some this week, and he asked a very helpful and thought-provoking question. I don't know if you intended it to be, but it was. Uh, he asked, what do you think is the hardest aspect to understand about passages like these? Like, what's the hardest aspect? aspect? Like, what hits you the most? You're like, oof, that's kind of hard to, to swallow. Different people would answer this question different ways, and I bet if we polled 10 of you, you might get 10 slightly different answers. But for me, I have a really hard time separating the condemnation of the wicked from the condemnation of wickedness. It sure feels like David is speaking against direct human beings, and he's mincing no words about his feelings towards them and what he wants to happen to them. However, David is not just condemning people. He is condemning sinful, wicked people. Maybe you've heard the phrase, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Have you heard something like that before? God loves the sinner but hates the sin, right? And that sounds nice and would seem to fit really well in a passage like this. But as John Piper has observed, that phrase is not biblical. He says plainly, get ready for it, God does hate sinners. Oof. But don't just take my word for it or John Piper's words for it. This reality comes from another psalm, Psalm 5, and this is taken from Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, God, you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Piper goes on to say, it is not, just not true to give the impression that God doesn't hate sinners by saying he loves the sinner and hates the sin. He does hate sinners. His wrath is real. It is not something he pours out on people he approves of. We'll hear back from Piper in a little bit, but the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. And what we see here in Psalm 58 is actually capturing God's posture towards sin. Look at verses 6 through 10 again. I'm not going to read through them all, but just look at some of the words there in verses 6 through 10. These are harsh, harsh words that remind us that God cannot tolerate sin. The sins we consider minor and private are outright acts of rebellion against the God who created us. There is no sin that is hidden from him, and there is no sin that God does not detest. If we are God's people, then we too are called to hate sin. So two things here, two things. First, we must hate our own sin. Uh, Romans 6 asks us, a familiar passage, should we, who are Christians, should we continue in sin? that God's grace may abound. By no means, or the King James, I like how the King James puts it because it puts it more strongly. It says, God forbid, right? Like, no way. How can we continue in sin? We cannot continue in sin. We ought to be ruthless in our personal battle 
against sin. I've heard it said that the longer you are a Christian, the more aware of your sinfulness you become. I have not been a Christian as long. I've been a Christian for a while. I haven't been as Christian as long as some of you in here, so I'd be curious to hear if that's true in your own life. But the truth of the matter remains the same. As Christians, we are called to oppose even those darkest corners of sin in our heart. And second, we are to hate sin that is public. The situation prompting David's writing seems to involve people who were speaking maliciously against him. He was being sinned against through other people's words. They openly sinned against him, and here this psalm is him openly denouncing their sin. As Christians, we are called to respond to sin that is public, and there are teachings on this littered throughout the Bible. Uh, just, just a few that I thought of. One is from Matthew 18, where Jesus is teaching, and he says that if someone sins against you, you are to go to them and address them personally. You're not to bring it to everyone to address them personally. But if they don't respond, they, 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 they don't, there is not confession, and there is genuine sin, and they're not repenting, then you bring alongside a couple others to try and help solve the situation. Uh, repeatedly in the Gospels, we see Jesus addressing and confronting the sinfulness of the religious leaders of his day as they desired personal gain more than God's glory. Or even think back to the book of Daniel, where you have several young godly men who are taken captive to another nation, and they are told, you will worship this idol, and they say, we will not, we will not sin against the Lord. And they face not just an angry king, but an entire nation. They withstand pressure to sin. They oppose it. We oppose sin because God opposes sin. We hate sin because he hate sin. How does a statement like that sit with you? Because I don't know about you, but it makes me a bit uncomfortable. I didn't like writing it. And yet I'm reminded that God has not called his people to a life of comfort. We're not in the people-pleasing business, but we are in the people-saving business. As painful as identifying and confronting sin is, both in our own lives and in the lives of others, it is only by addressing our sin problem that true healing is found. For salvation of sin, we must first recognize our problem of sin. So before we leave this point, just a couple of applicational questions that I think will cover probably most everyone here in the room. Do you have a healthy hatred a despising, a detesting of sin. Uh, Kids, kids in here, do you resist the urge to sin? Do you resist sin even when you really want to? Even you really, what do you want to do that thing, say that thing? You resist it, you say, no, I will not because I know this is not how God would have me live. Uh, Parents, you teach your kids tons of things. Are you teaching and modeling for them what it looks like to have a healthy hatred of sin? Spouses, are you vigilantly guarding against sin within your own marriage? Christian here today, are you daily fighting against sin in your life and resisting the urge to become complacent in your fight against wickedness? Not only does Psalm 58 teach us that we are to hate sin, but second, we must live humbly. We must live humbly. If our first point is a forge that has gotten us red hot, uh, this second point is the cooling water that is going to temper us a bit back down. 
All right, so we're coming back down. If you're like, man, he is going hard. Okay, we're tempering it back down a little bit. We're cooling ourselves off. In most situations, if you hate something, it's because you are proud of something else. Example. I am a pretty avid uh, fan of the University of Michigan, especially their football team. And if you know anything about college sports, you know that Michigan does not get along very well with with its southern rival, um, Ohio State. Uh, We just don't really get along, and that makes me very happy. I almost get happier when Ohio State loses than when Michigan wins. I mean, that's how bad it is, right? And as a proud Michigan fan, I strongly dislike Ohio State. And to be fair to Ohio State, they strongly and rightfully dislike Michigan. Uh, Who we cheer for will determine who we cheer against. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can take a biblical principle, because I would say that first point is a biblical principle. We are to hate sin in our own lives. We hate sin because God hates sin. If we're not careful, we can let a biblical principle like that become unbiblical by taking it to an unbiblical extent. We could easily become proud and haughty. We could be high on ourselves. Because after all, if I'm saved from sin, and if I'm called to hate it, then that means that I'm and we're all superior to all the people out there who aren't repenting of their sin, right? I mean, that's a logical line of thinking. And yet Psalm 58 has an answer to that very question. Look at verses 1 and 2 here of Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? And then verse 2 answers plainly, no. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. Uh, That word there, gods, isn't referring to idols who are worshipped, but rather to men who view themselves too highly. Uh, The CSB provides a helpful translation, I think, by saying it refers to them as mighty ones. And they are people who are not just mighty in nature, but they are mighty in their own eyes. They view themselves as powerful and mighty. They are proud, puffed up, and full of themselves. And that's the kind of people that this psalm is written against. As Christians, we are called to hate sin, but we are also called to live humbly. Only through humility can we guard against the pride of our hearts. Two thoughts on how we ought to live humbly. First look again now at verse 3. Verse 3 here in Psalm 58. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. David says that his enemies have been wicked from the time they were born. A statement which should remind us about a truth impacting all human nature. We know from Romans 3, which is then a quotation of Uh, Psalm 53, that there is none righteous, no, not one. You you see, we all go astray at birth. We are all sinners both by nature and by choice. We are unrighteous enemies in front of God, but there is hope. Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. No sinners will inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
We are to live humbly because if we are in Christ, we realize that it is only by the grace of God that we are no longer his enemies. We understand it is only through the work of God on our behalf that these imprecatory psalms are not written against us. That there is nothing special about us that made God save us. We are sinners saved from our sin. And we must never forget where we have come from and what we have been saved from. Second, we live humbly as we imitate the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we live humbly because of what Jesus has done for us, and we live humbly as we imitate Jesus. Because we have received undeserved grace and mercy, we now strive to live like the one who has saved us. Jesus' life on earth was one of complete humility. He was not concerned with his own interests and agenda, but he was concerned with the needs of others. He, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the will of his Father, even when it led to death. We do not follow a proud and flamboyant Savior who says, look at me. No, we follow a humble and a selfless one. So does the humility of Christ, does that kind of humility characterize you? Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As disciples of Jesus, we are not called to self-love, but to selfless love. We love others as Christ has loved us. So are you striving to live like Jesus? Are you emulating his humility? Do you live humbly? Psalm 58 and the imprecatory Psalms, they they teach us that we are to hate sin, that they remind us that we are to live humbly, And third, they teach us that God is in control and we're not. God is in control and we're not. We must not forget why Psalm 58 was was written. Uh, David penned this psalm in response to wicked men who were making his life emotionally difficult and physically unsafe. It would appear these men primarily caused harm through their words, through what they were saying about David even behind his back. And notice how David describes his speech. Notice how David says, this is how they are talking about me. In verse 4, there in Psalm 58. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. David hears the lies and malicious words of his enemies. He hears these words, and he feels the weight of them. He feels the weight of this relational oppression, and he's begging God to bring justice. He's begging God to do what is right. And we've all been there, haven't we? No doubt we've all had times where we have been mistreated by someone in some way. Perhaps someone has used you for their own gain. Maybe someone you once counted as a friend turned out to be the exact opposite. And in those moments where we've been wronged by others, what is our natural response? I don't know about you, but I want to see the oppressor be punished. I want to see the person inflicting pain feel the pain. I want justice. To the kids in here, uh, how many of you play a sport, any sort of sport, or have ever played a sport or a game at any point? Anyone play a sport? 
Anyone play a sport? A few of you? And maybe adults are like, I played a sport too. We're still kids. All right. We played a sport. I played uh, soccer growing up. And while my career started out pretty rough, and you can ask me about that afterwards, um, I stuck with it and came to enjoy it. Uh, I was never the quickest dribbler uh, nor the fastest player on the field. And inevitably, that would mean that there would be times in the game where someone on the other team would get past me. However, I might not be the fastest, but I am pretty competitive, and I don't like giving satisfaction to someone for beating me. So if a player dribbled past me, I would make it my sole mission. I don't care about anything else in the game. I don't even care if we lose. My sole mission to hunt them down and get the ball from them. And nothing else mattered until I made them feel how they made me feel. It's like my eyes became red. I got locked in. It was like, we're going for it, right? We are getting this ball from this person. And unfortunately, most of the time, my plot for revenge didn't work. And if it did, I would usually get called for a foul because you're not supposed to kick the player, you're supposed to kick the ball. I'm kidding. Almost. This is just a personal, lighthearted example of what I suspect is a much more expansive and serious problem within our hearts. Where do we turn when we can suffer injustice no more? Psalm 58 is a model for how we are to respond when we face times of injustice, when we want revenge. And I think this model comes with three steps. First, we are to do what David did when he wrote this psalm. The mere fact that David wrote this psalm, it shows us that he is taking his frustrations, his disappointments, his hurts, and his fears, he's taking them to the Lord. Rather than taking matters into his own hands, rather than doing what I would do and go and kick the person and get the ball from him, he's taking it to God. Notice how David does not hold back, though. Just because he's taking it to God doesn't mean he's all polite and religious in his prayer. He is raw and emotionally charged. He literally asked God to knock out his enemy's teeth. He's not holding back how he's feeling. He let God know everything he was feeling and thinking. Uh, Martin Luther once said that prayer is the sweat of the soul. And, and here in Psalm 58, as David is pressed by wicked men, his true self is revealed. He is angry over sin, but the key is that he is not looking inward, he is looking Godward for help. Second, when we face injustice, we must rehearse truths about God. We must rehearse truths about God. The heading for the psalm that you'll see there over verse 1, the heading for the psalm comes from verse 11. You can look at it with me. David here boldly declares, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. We're not told what became of these wicked men. We're not sure when or where they got punished. It's honestly possible David himself never found out. However, he could be confident because justice would one day be served and he knew that it would come because the righteous God of the universe judges the earth. Right? He's not waiting for someone, some judge somewhere to rule in his favor. He's not waiting for something to happen. No, the righteous judge of the earth rules in his favor. He judges the earth. When we're facing uncertainty, 
when we're drowning in despair, when we're begging for justice, is there anything more comforting than knowing that God is sovereign in all things? We just sang a few minutes ago, right? Hallelujah, God above it all. Hallelujah, God who is unshakable. If we truly believe that he is above all things, and if we believe our God is just, we need not concern ourselves with the fate of our enemies because he's in control and we're not. So Psalm 58 instructs us to run to God, to trust in his character. And third and lastly, as we conclude, it exhorts us to consider the gospel. And look with me here at verse 10 of Psalm 58. Perhaps the most important verse in this psalm. The righteous one will rejoice when he sees the retribution. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. David here was anxiously waiting for the day when the wicked would be defeated and the righteous would win. He prayed to God for this to come true. That's what this prayer is. It's essentially, God, please defeat my wicked enemies. But his prayer anticipates another victory, far greater than David could ever imagine. You, you see, like the righteous person of verse 10, we too, us today, we can rejoice, but not because God has defeated our enemies in a bloody battle. No, as we've already discussed, each one of us is, is naturally wicked. In a sense, we are our own worst enemy. We are not righteous, but sinful. Nevertheless, God in his great love did not require our blood to pay for our sin, but rather he shed his own blood for us. We rejoice because that is the blood that washes us. The blood that washes is not the feet of our wicked enemies, but it's the blood of Jesus. And Paul in Romans 5 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Earlier I quoted John Piper as saying that God hates sinners. He said his wrath does not spare sinners. And this is from the end of that same article. Because I don't know about you, but it left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. If we don't understand what God finds, what, if we don't understand that God finds us hateful and loathsome in our ugly sin, we won't be as stunned by what his love is for us. God saves millions of people who are loathsome to him in and of themselves until he saves them and makes them the apple of his eye. God comes to us not in our attractiveness, like, oh, I really like this person, but I just hate their sin. No, he finds me and all of us disgusting because of our rebellion, just like we find certain wicked people disgusting because of their sin. And Piper concludes by saying, he, Jesus, is coming to us and he is dying for us in order that he might make us into the apple of his eye. Friends, the good news of the gospel for us today is that the retribution, that punishment that I deserve, that we deserve, that punishment was not inflicted on us, but inflicted on Jesus. He took on our sin, 
our wickedness, and he shed his blood for us. And in return, all Jesus asks is that we would turn from our sin and confess that he is Lord. Is there any mystery, is there any story more amazing, more wonderful than the story of God's love for us? Let's pray.